we want to say a special welcome to the uh, younger folks among us. During the, the months of the summer, where while the schools are taking a break, uh, we have our kids worshiping all together with us for the entire time. Uh, so kids, welcome here. We're, we just, as a, as a church family, and, and if many of you are sitting with your parents and your, your, your families, we just desire to worship together, to hear from God together. And um, I, we know especially that uh, people like me can be a little long-winded. We can talk for a long time sometimes. And so we've developed this, uh, this page to help you um, follow along and, and to write down some of your thoughts, what you're hearing, what you're thinking about as we uh, are worshiping together. So it's called Sermon Notes for Kids. You have, there's a section there where, hey, these are some words that I heard, but I don't understand what they mean. And write those words down. Maybe there's a section there that says, I heard this today, but I find this, I don't really understand that. That's confusing for me. It's actually hard for me to believe that. That's true. Write those things down. We're talking about the Bible. There's a section there for the Bible passage we're studying today. What are we learning about God today? What difference does you know, believing these truths about God make in the way I live? A place where you can write some stuff down. So write some stuff down as, you're, as we're going this morning. Write your thoughts down, and that'll be a great thing to talk about with your parents as on the drive home or around lunch today. Um, but uh, we are going to, to uh, really, we're really excited to worship together and to learn together um, as many ages over the summer. We are, as a church family, throughout the summer, coming back to the Gospel of John. So you may remember adults uh, who are in this room just before Christmas in the months of Advent. We, we started the Gospel of John with that great prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We be, over, the month of, over the month of December, we, we went, and then throughout the winter, we continued on through the Gospel of John, and we ended up finishing John chapter 4. And we saw that, um, or I, I don't know if we saw that, but I was teaching how the Gospel of John is organized around three or around seven signs that Jesus performs. Especially the first 12 chapters of John are organized around these seven miraculous signs that, that Jesus does. And um, John actually tells us why he does that, why he organizes his gospel around them, why he wrote down these miraculous signs. And he didn't just call them miracles. They weren't just stunts. They weren't just like, look at me, look how crazy, I, look crazy stuff I can do. They were signs, and signs point to something. Signs demonstrate something. Signs show a meaning. In John chapter 20, Jesus te- or John tells us why he recorded some things. In John 20, verse 30, it says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his, of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. He says, Jesus did all kinds of miraculous signs. And I didn't write all of those down. He says, but these are written. So I wrote down the ones that I did. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John wants us to know that uh, he's writing these signs in order that we would um, believe in him. That we would know that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the promised one, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that we would believe in Him, that these signs would show us something about Jesus, and that they would birth faith in us, that we would believe in Him, that we would give ourselves fully over to Him, and that as we believe in Him, we would find life in His name. 
that increasingly we would find our life in him based on the things that we're seeing about him that these signs reveal. These signs are revealing something to us about Jesus. Jesus. And they birth then faith in us as we see Jesus' grace, as we see his love, as we see his authority and his power, as we see his compassion that moves us to believe in him, to become his followers, to give ourselves fully over to him. And so we're coming this morning to the third sign of those seven signs. The first sign was in John chapter 2, where Jesus saves a party, saves a wedding feast at Cana of Galilee, where they had run out of wine, and Jesus takes... Um, wine and transforms it, turns it, takes water, transforms it into wine. He makes like 180 gallons of fine wine. And, and we saw how Jesus that shows himself as the, as the great joy giver, as the, as the source of all true joy. We saw in chapter 4, the second sign was the healing of the official son. In fact, that is immediately preceding the passage we're at this morning. So we come this morning to Jesus healing a man at a pool called Bethesda. So I invite you to turn to John chapter 5. We're going to read the first 18 verses of John chapter 5. So John chapter 5, verse 1. Sometime later, that's after healing uh, the official son, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five colored, covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Now, I should, I'm going to stop right there. You see, that was verse 3. If you continue reading, it's verse 5. Some manuscripts um, include a phrase that is verse 4. So these are later manuscripts than the earliest manuscripts we have of the Gospel of John. But I'll read that for you just, just in case. And they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool, after each such disturbance, would be cured of whatever disease he had. So that verse 4 is in some later manuscripts that we have found in the Gospel of John. The earliest, most complete manuscripts doesn't include that verse. Verse 5. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool whenever the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up. Pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, 
the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is God's word to us today. So the story takes place at a pool called Bethesda. Now, um, for many, many years, uh, people doubted the historicity of this place because uh, we could find no, it was unattested in history. We could find no uh, other references to this place called Bethesda. No archaeology could ever find this place until 1888. We uh, uncovered a place near the Sheep Gate with five covered colonnades and an inscription of Bethesda. It's a popular story. Maybe, you know, we have a ministry in Niagara called Bethesda, uh, a very large ministry helping people with with, uh, particular needs. One of uh, Sherry and I, uh, every once in a while, get to go to New York City for um, a board that I am on for a board meeting, and uh, we love one of our favorite places in New York is Central Park, and one of our favorite places in Central Park is the Bethesda Fountain. I kind of had a bit of a, I geeked out a little bit because it was Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, right? Happens up, the Kevin McAllister gets away from the, 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 the robbers at Bethesda Fountain, right? He's in the horse and they get lost. Bethesda Fountain is this beautiful fountain of, of an angel stirring up some waters. It's a very popular story. We don't, to be honest, we really don't know how much about this, uh, whether it's a legend or not, about this angel, whether that's true or false. But I would point out, it doesn't really matter to the story, whether an angel actually did come down, stir up the waters, and the first person in got healed. It doesn't really matter to the story if that really happened or not. What, we, what matters is that these people believed that it was true. That this man who has been crippled, who is unable to walk for 38 years, has been laying at this pool, hoping that one day he would be the one in the water so that one day he would be healed. He was desperate to be healed, and he had no hope of being healed otherwise. And so crippled people were desperate enough to believe it. And as we read, Jesus here at this pool heals a man who's been here for 38 years. That's longer than I've been alive. That's... A long time, right? Now, this is meant to show us something about Jesus, right? Whenever we come to a sign in the Gospel of John, where John wants us to ask, what is this sign pointing to? What is this sign showing us about Jesus so that we would believe in him? So that, so that we would have faith in him and that by believing in him, we would have life. What, it, what is this sign calling us to point to, to, to understand about Jesus? What's it pointing to? In fact, this sign opens up a conversation throughout the rest of chapter 5 that we'll, we'll talk about in coming weeks. But two main things that I want us to see this morning, I think this text is, is, is really pointing to us, is that, first of all, Jesus' words bring healing. Jesus', Jesus words, words bring healing. And the second thing is that Jesus' work brings rest. Jesus' word brings healing, and his work brings brings rest. Now that should be, both of those things should be surprising to us, right? When you're sick and you go to the doctor, you know, if you have a broken leg, 
You're not saying to the doctor, just speak to me. Would you speak kindly to me? Say some nice things about me. Right? You're not, you're not, you're not going for his words or her words. Just the same, in the same way, it should be surprising that Jesus' work is what brings rest. Work should be tiring, but it's his work that brings rest. So this should be surprising to both of us in both of these things. Jesus is drawn to this man's need. Jesus isn't drawn to heal this man because of this man's faith. Right? It's not because this guy has a lot of faith in Jesus and he believes really strongly in Jesus that Jesus heals him. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. He doesn't know anything about Jesus. Jesus is drawn to his need, not because of his faith. And Jesus comes and he asks him this beautiful question. Do you want to be well? Do you want to be well again? Jesus often asks questions. There are often great questions. I guess they're always great questions because he's Jesus, but... Remember, maybe you remember in, in uh, the first chapter of John, his very first disciples were coming, and Jesus said to them, and, and they began to follow after Jesus, and Jesus says, turns around and says, what do you want? Now, I always kind of find that funny, because I always pictured Jesus like, what do you want? But, but I, I don't think he asked it that way. I think he said, what do you want? What are you after? What does, what does your desire? What's, what are you really out after? And Jesus, again, is going after this man's, this crippled man's heart and his desires. He says, what, do you want to be well? You might say, well, of course, everyone wants to be well. But not, I don't think that's always the case. I don't think Jesus, this was a throwaway question. I think Jesus was actually interested in getting at this person's heart and saying, this man's heart and saying, do you actually want to be well? Because, quite frankly, some, his whole identity was wrapped up in being the crippled man at Bethesda's pool for 38 years. And being healed might have been threatening to him, right? Now all of a sudden, he, you know, you could make a, he could make a living begging on the streets. Not a great living, I presume, but people were taking care of his needs because he was unable to take care of his own needs. And so for Jesus to heal him is calling him into a whole new identity. He's no longer the crippled man at Bethesda's pool. He now has to, to work, and he's calling him to a life of fruitfulness. And so it's not a throwaway question. Do you want to be well? Do you want to be well? And he answers. He doesn't really answer the question, right? He doesn't say, yeah, I really do want to be well. He, all he points to is his own inability and says, I have, I have no way of being well. I have no way. I can't get into the pool. No one's, no one's bringing me there, and I can't move myself. I have no way to be well. All he talks about is his own ability. Inability, and that's all that Jesus needs to work with is our inability. And so Jesus, with his words, heals him. Not because this man has great faith, but because Jesus has great power and great compassion. And so we see here that Jesus has the power to physically heal people. Jesus can physically heal people. He has authority over sickness. He has authority over suffering. He has authority over disease. And, and he ultimately has authority even over death. He speaks and sickness is overcome. He speaks and that disease or that suffering or whatever it is that was holding this man 
down and be, making him a crippled man was overcome by the word of Jesus. Now, what's important for us this, this morning is to understand that Jesus actually promises that his power and his authority would continue through his church by the working of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said to his disciples, as the Father sent me, so I sent you. So I send you. As the Father sent me, so I send you you. Well, we see here that Jesus healed this man because he saw what the Father was doing. He was doing it because he he healed this man because he was sent by the Father. It's clear in this text. Jesus says, I see my Father working and I join him in that work. I just do whatever the Father is doing. And right now the Father is calling me to heal this man. And so I'm following the work of the Father. And the sending of the Father has led me to heal this man physically. And Jesus says, as the Father sends me, so I send you. Now, the place in the the Bible where we read the beginning of the church, the birth of the church, is the book of Acts. And the the person who wrote the book of Acts, his name is Luke, and he also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And in the opening words of the book of Acts, Luke says this, and he writes to the same man, Theophilus, and he says, In the first book, the Gospel of Luke, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. I I taught about all that Jesus began to do saying, now I'm going to write about all that Jesus continues to do through his church by his Holy Spirit. And so in the, the opening scenes of the, gospel, or of the book of Acts is, um, is God pouring out his Holy Spirit on his church, empowering his church. And what we see through the book of Acts is believers in Jesus praying for people to be well, and they're made well. And now, a conviction of mine is that we are not meant to read the book of Acts as something that God used to do. We don't read the book of Acts as a history book saying, God used to be like that, God used to do these things. But no, we read the book of Acts as something that God, uh, as a record of what God stands ready to do among his, among his people. God stands ready to do among his people. Now, I don't believe that's actually what we see on a lot of TV shows if you kind of go to those channels. I don't believe that God intends to heal everyone. There were many people. There was a crowd at Bethesda's pool, and he heals only this one person. As I I said, in in verses 17 to, to 20, really, he's saying, I saw the Father. I just do what the Father tells me to do. And I saw the Father obviously meant for me to him to heal this man and not the others. There's reasons why sometimes he doesn't heal people as we pray for them. The Apostle Paul prayed that he would be healed of this thorn in the flesh that he called it. And he says that, that God said to him, no, my, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul's, Paul goes on to testify how he knew more about Jesus' power and knew, knew more about Jesus' love and knew more about Jesus' grace through suffering, through, um, through his weakness, than he would know through healing. But sometimes Jesus' words bring healing. As the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church, he gives the church what's, what are called spiritual gifts. First, First Corinthians 12 says this, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom, to another the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing, by that one spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, and another speaking in different kinds of tongues. 
and to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of the one and same Spirit, and he gives them to each one just as he determines. You see, the, the Holy Spirit gives gifts to his church for the common good, for the maturing of the church, for the building up of his body. Now, some, some in the church, brothers that we, and sisters that we love dearly um, and regard them as brothers in Christ, would, would teach that you know, th- some of these gifts were given only for a certain time for, until we had the New Testament written, and then the New Testament replaced those signed gifts. And again, if that's one interpretation of the New Testament... I disagree with that because that's, that's, not, not, that's not what it says the spiritual gifts were given for. It doesn't, say, it doesn't say that. It says it was given for the maturing of the church, for the accomplishing of the mission of the church. Last I checked, the church wasn't fully mature and its mission wasn't fully accomplished. And so Jesus, has, his words have power to bring healing. And sometimes he brings physical healing healing. And so I, my, my hope, my prayer this morning is that this, um, that this simple account, this sign that Jesus, Jesus performed at the pool of Bethesda would free us as a church to pray for physical healing. And we do that often. As elders, sometimes we gather around people who are sick to pray for healing. And we ask God that you would, yes, sustain them through this that you would make your power known in, in weakness and in suffering. But Lord, our request is that you would heal. And there are testimonies in our congregation, in this gathering of people, of men and women who have been healed by God's power. We don't demand that from God, but we simply present our requests to him. That's what, that's what he, the New Testament tells us to do, right? Don't make demands of God in prayer, but simply... Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, make your requests known. What a beautiful thing that is, to make your request for healing known to someone whose word has the power to heal. We also see in this text, though, that there's healing from sin. The healing from sin is offered in this text. We need to point out that Jesus' intention of healing is to bring him this man into a place of healing from his sin. When Jesus meets this man in the temple after the fact, right, he says, look, he says, look, you're well. Be careful. Stop sinning or something worse will happen. You're well. Sin no more. And he invites this man into a life of repentance and says, if you will not follow me in a life of faith and repentance, something worse than 38 years of paralysis will come upon you. pretty bad right and and what jesus is calling him to is to a what we call a dynamic of faith faith in jesus and repentance from sin and this is a dynamic that just repeats over and over again it's like a wheel it's a cycle believe in jesus and i repent of my sin i don't want to i don't want to i don't want to live god like you don't exist anymore I don't, I don't want to live like you're not real anymore. I want to live like you are real, that you really do exist, that you really are the king, that you really are gracious, that you really do love me through Christ, that Jesus, you really did die on the cross for my sin. I want to live as though that's true, and so I believe in it, and I repent of not doing that. I turn away from that. This life, that's what repentance means. Repentance means turning away, saying, I was living this way. I live like you don't exist, God. I live like Jesus isn't the king. I live like Jesus didn't die on the cross for my sin. I, I, live, 
I, I, I do what I want to do. I think my own thoughts. I pursue my own goals. I live selfishly. And I turn away from that. And I turn towards the truth. I turn towards Jesus. That Jesus, you did die on the cross for my sin. That you did rise again. That you are coming again. That you are the king. That you are real. And we begin to live like that's really true. That's what, that's what a life of repentance and faith looks like. It's this dynamic that continues over and over again. This, this, this cycle. And it goes upward as we, as we see more of our sin and we repent of that and we trust Jesus to forgive us of our sin. That's what, that's what Jesus calls this man into. He says, don't. I didn't, it, it's not enough that I healed you physically. I didn't just save you from paralysis. I want to save you to restored relationship with God. So Jesus wants more than to, to, to do more than to restore physical health. He wants to restore people to God. He wants to heal not only their bodies, but he wants to heal their hearts and make us alive to God. So Jesus' word here brings healing, but Jesus' work also brings rest. We need to understand some, some things about this. And, and you'll notice that in this text, John makes really clear, he says, the day on which Jesus did this was the Sabbath. Right? John wants to draw our attention to the Sabbath. It's obviously a big deal in the eyes of some of the religious leaders in Israel. Because Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath, what did they want to do to him? What did they want to do because he did this on the Sabbath? Sammy? He wanted to kill him because he did something good. They're like, you healed him, we'll kill you. So it's obviously a big deal, right? It's obviously a big deal in their eyes. So what's this all about? Well, the Sabbath day was one of God's laws. That Maybe you know, kids, you know Ten Commandments? Well, one of those ten was you shall keep the Sabbath day holy. So one of God's laws, one of God's commands to his people was to keep the Sabbath day. And what, he, what God meant on that is he commanded his people to rest from their work one day per week. That's the rule. Take a day off work. You shall take a day off work. That's, that's the rule. It's a great gift of God, right? A day of rest to recover, to, to, to renew your bodies, to worship. It's meant to be one of God's gifts. In fact, all of God's commands, kids, all of God's commands, all of his rules, all of what he tells us to do is actually meant to lead us to the very best kind of life. He's just telling us, this is the way life works best. This is the way I made you. I made you to, for your life to be best if you were to walk in my ways, if you were to follow my commands. Says, if you try to work seven days a week, nonstop, you're going to come to the end of your strength and you're not going to have any kind of enjoyment of life. And you're, not, and you're not living in dependence on me to provide for what you can accomplish in six days. All of these things. That's, but the rule is this. Don't work one day a week. Sabbath day was the seventh day of the week. Last day of the week, Saturday. Saturday. Don't work. That's the rule. But religious people, what we like to do is we like to take the rule and think of the rule as a fence that you're not supposed to cross. Right? So the fence is right here. And, and, and the rule is don't cross this fence and the, don't, don't work every day of the week. And so what religious people want to do is we're like, well, that's the fence, so we better not even go close to the fence. So let's build a fence 
around the fence. So back, if the fence is here, like back here, let's build another fence. And, um, and before long, that fence becomes the rule. And we think, well, we better not cross that fence. And so uh, let's not even get close to that fence. So let's build another fence out here and let's, so that we don't break the rule. And the rule's over here. But forgetting that the rule's actually way over here, that the rule's three fences ago. And what religious people love to do is we want to make sure that we obey really, really well. And so we make all kinds of rules around rules around rules so that we don't actually break the real rule. Well, that's what the Jews did. And, and, and so they, they started to think, well, what's work? What's work? Hmm. To me, carrying something seems like work. So let's make a rule to make sure that we don't work on the Sabbath. Let's make a rule. You're not allowed to carry anything. And then they said, well, we're wearing clothes. Does that count as carrying something? Well, no, no, no. Well, you can't carry anything, but you can wear stuff. That's what they, they said. And so that's what they got upset with this man about, right? That he was carrying his mat. Now, if he had strapped it around his back, he, he could say he was wearing his mat and it wouldn't have been a problem. But since he was carrying it, it became a problem. They said, well, what else is work? Um, well, well, medical work on, on the Sabbath. Let's, let's, um, w- medical work seems like work, and so no medical work. And, but they, uh, they didn't have dentists back then. Did you know that? Lucky them. But, so, but people with, without dentistry often got toothaches. And what, what they would do to, solve, to help with their toothaches is they, they put vinegar on their teeth to help with their toothaches. But they said, oh man, we can't work on the Sabbath, and medical work is work, so we better not put vinegar on our teeth. I know. Let's, put, let's eat food with tons and tons of vinegar on it so that it helps our teeth. That's okay. But if you just take vinegar and put it on your teeth, not okay. That breaks the rule because that's a fence around the fence around the fence. Well, travel also seems like work. Walking. And so let's make a rule... Like, but we have to walk a little bit, right? So how far can we walk? How far, how much walking starts to become work? When, when does it start to become work? So 900 meters, 1,000 yards. 900, you can walk 900 meters from, a, from your home, but if you rock 901, it's become work, and you've broken the Sabbath. So let's make a rule, 900. But I can walk 900 meters from home, but what's home? Well, home's the place where I eat a meal. So if on Friday I walked 850 meters, dropped some food off, and on, the, on Saturday I walked that 850 meals, found my food, food, ate my meal there, that's now my home, I can walk another 850 meters. Do you see how ridiculous it gets? As they put rule upon rule upon rule. So there's this little fence here. It's like, I can fit it in here. Don't work. And they say, well, we, we, we certainly want to obey the law. And so let's put a fence around that to make sure that we don't get close to that real fence. And before long, that second fence becomes the rule. Well, we don't want to break this rule, so let's put another fence. And let's put another fence. But what this reveals... To us, what this reveals to us is that every single one of us 
knows that we have broken God's law. We know that we haven't done what's right. And so we want to measure up. We know we're not perfect. But we want to feel like we are. And so we make rules that we can keep. Feel good about ourselves for keeping them. Look down on people who don't. And we want to say, well, God must really love us. God must really love me today because I didn't work. I didn't even walk 900 meters meters today. He He must think I'm pretty great. And you begin to feel good about yourself. You begin to become proud. You begin to, be, you begin to think God loves you because you're awesome. You say, well, I'm not a religious person. I don't put rules upon rules upon rules. Well, why do you work so hard? Why are you so driven to be successful in your career? Why are you so concerned about managing your image on the Facebook? Because we all need to measure up. We all need to measure up. We, we all have this itch and we have to scratch it. We've all got the itch that needs to be scratched. And so Jesus, on the Sabbath day, the Sabbath day that had become a burden, it was meant as a gift from God, as a day of rest and refreshment. It's become a burden saying, I'm worrying that I'm breaking the Sabbath. Instead of rest, it became burdensome. And it's all because our hearts are sinful. That we have broken the law and we know it. And so we we can't rest. We can't rest because we know that we've fallen short. We know we've broken God's law. And and, and so there's no, how could I rest? I got to work. I got to prove myself. There's no rest for me. I've got, I got to, I got to show myself that I'm good. And I got to show God that I'm good. And I got to show everyone else that I'm good. And so we think we need to work really hard to restore ourselves back into God's good graces. So we come up with these rules. But the law, the law that God gave his people was, is not all about your performance. It's not about keeping the rules even. What did Jesus say? When Jesus, said, when Jesus was asked the question, what's the law all about? What's the most important command? Kids, anyone know what he said? What did Jesus say when he said, when someone asked, what's the most important, the important commandment? What did he say? Adults, anyone? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The law was about love. The law was about walking in relationship with God. Does worrying about whether or not you've walked 900 meters or not sound like love to you? A relationship of love? Does working really, really hard to prove that you're really, really good, even though you know you've broken God's and God's and you've broken his heart, does that sound like a relationship of love? The law's job was never to save us. The law's job was never to put us back in relationship with God. The law's job was to show us that we've fallen short, to show us how we failed. To show us just how much we need Jesus to save us. James says the law is like a mirror. You look in it and you're like, Ooh, I don't like what I see. The law says to love God with all of your being. 
The law says to love your neighbor as yourself. And I look at that and I say, I don't do that. That's not me. The law's job is to show you of your need. And so the solution isn't to ignore the law. You know, sometimes uh, followers of Jesus, we go a little far and we quote Paul. It's in the Bible. It says, well, I'm not under law. I'm under grace. That's in the Bible. But what Paul, in the context, Paul's saying, I'm not under the law. law, I'm not using the law to make make me acceptable to God. God's grace is what makes me acceptable to God. God's grace is what restores me to relationship with God, not my performance of the law. But, but we can't ignore the law. It's an itch that we have to scratch. It's not just for the religious. It's for the irreligious as well. We are all out to prove ourselves. And we have no rest because we are under the law. We are restless because we know we've broken it. And so here's the beautiful thing. Here's the beauty, beauty of this passage. What does Jesus say he does on the Sabbath? What are you not allowed to do on the Sabbath? Work. What is Jesus, says he, what is Jesus saying he's doing on the Sabbath? Do you see it? He says, I'm working. I'm working on this Sabbath because it is my work that provides you real rest. The reason you can rest from the law, the reason you can have rest from all of these commands upon commands, upon rules upon rules, the reason you can rest from your own performance even, the reason you can rest knowing that that God accepts you and loves you and restores relationship with you is because you don't have to work because he worked. And he worked for you. And he paid your debt for you. He paid your debt. He worked, and now you can rest. You can rest from your work of making yourself acceptable and rest in his work to do it for you. Now, I want to illustrate. I need need kids. I need two kid volunteers to come up because we need to illustrate why we can rest in Jesus' work for us. So two, two, come on up. Yep. Amelia, come on up. I need one more. How's it going? You're going to shake my, you're going to give me five or you're going to hold my hand. There we go. That's nice. Hi, Amelia. Do you have another friend who is going to come up? Andrew, come on up. All right. So you guys are going to stand beside each other facing right there. Oh, you stand over there beside Amelia and look at me. Look at me. All right. So here it is. Amelia, I heard that you wanted a new toy, but you didn't have the $5 that it required. And so I gave you $5 you put it in your pocket and you went to the store and you spent it on your new toy and so amelia now you owe me five dollars right do you owe me five dollars yeah but you have a good friend and andrew came and said i heard that amelia owes you five dollars well i got an i got five dollars i'll give it to you so i've got my five dollars back here's the question amelia do you still owe me five dollars do you still owe me $5? Can I come to you and say, Amelia, give me $5? Can I say that? Andrew, can I say that? Why not? Because you already paid it for, me, for her, right? It would be really bad of me to go and say, take Andrew's $5 and then go to Amelia and say, Amelia, you owe me $5 or else. Because then I'd have 10 And that wouldn't be right. Thank you, guys. 
Thank you. You were great volunteers. So friends, here's the point. Here's the point. Jesus paid your debt. You don't have to. It would be evil of God to require you to pay your own debt when he paid it for you. It would be evil of God to require you to pay a debt that's already been paid. And so stop trying to rest in your own performance. Stop trying to think, God must really love me today because I was really, really good. Or God must be really mad at me today because I didn't quite live up. It was never based on your performance. It was never based on how great you are. You can rest from your working and rest in the work that Jesus has done for you. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. Can this birth faith in us? Can this sign of Jesus where he has the power to heal a man who is helpless on the Sabbath day? Can that birth faith in us? Because he was out to more than just heal him. He was out to restore him to God, to bring physical healing to him, but more than that, spiritual healing, to heal his heart and to show us once and for all that we can stop working and stop trying to earn God's love and stop, stop trying to rest in our, own, in our own self, in our own performance and rest in him. That's what it's all about. It's all about resting in the work of Jesus for us. And so the invitation to you today is to believe in him, to see his his glory, to see the glory of, of, of the story that he's writing, to say, wow, that is amazing. Thank you, Father, that you sent your son, Jesus, that he worked for me, that he obeyed for me, that he lived the perfect life that I should have lived, and still he died. He paid the penalty. He paid the debt that I owed. I owed you a perfect life, God, because you made me. I owed you. I should have loved you first, and I should have loved everyone else just like I love myself, but I haven't. And so I owe you, but you've paid the debt. You've paid the debt. And so I can rest in Jesus.